Welcome to another sermon podcast from Central Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode will feature a sermon delivered by the Rev. Shannon J. Kirshner. The sermon is based on scripture from Psalm 111 and 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Central Sunday morning service for the 28th of January, 2024, the fourth Sunday in Ordinary Time, was streamed to our website, our Facebook page, and our YouTube channel. A complete video or sermon audio replay of this service may be found on cpcatlanta.org. Select the upper right menu, and then Sermons Under Worship. Now for something a little different. First, First Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. I invite you to again listen for God's living word. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by God. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge. Since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you who possess knowledge eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed. But when you thus sin against brothers and sisters and wound their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their failing, I will never again eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the Apostle Paul and I have had more than a few wrestling matches over the years. Would not surprise you to know that I've not always agreed with some of the things he has to say, especially around the area of women's leadership in church and or place in the home. He just plain frustrates me sometimes. Most of that frustration comes because Paul's usually trying to do two things at the same time. He's always trying to help his people think theologically or doctrinally, this kind of big picture faithfulness. But then he's always trying to respond pastorally to particular church situations, more of a situational faithfulness. And as we all know, sometimes those two responses do not go hand in hand. Therefore, as theologian J. Christian Becker writes, Paul risks the charge of inconsistency Because there is no doctrinal principle or yardstick by which we can decide in advance when and where principle prevails over situation, or truth of the gospel prevails over the unity of the church. 
This is the tension in today's text. Now, I know that this chapter in Corinthians sounds like an odd part of the letter with which she, we should wrestle. Meat and idolatry. Eating meat is a possible stumbling block for faith. In our country and in our time, it's a strange debate to overhear. And yet, by the power of God's Spirit, I believe it continues to be instructive for us. First, though, let me very briefly set the stage and offer a context for the letter. Paul did in Corinth what he's done in other cities. He started a church. And as he has done in other places, he stayed for a while, probably around 18 months, so that he could impress upon the newly converted the importance of living their faith. Paul always proclaimed the lordship of Christ and all that one did and said at home, in the marketplace, and certainly as a faith community. And even after he would leave a congregation, Paul would end up doing a great deal of ministry via letters. We have many of those letters gathered up as a part of our scripture. And from how Paul responds, it seems that the churches would make up a list of questions and or complaints and send them to him for his wisdom and guidance. This appears to be the case for this church in Corinth, Greece. Their letter, which we do not have, must have been line after line after line of questions because Paul spends 14 out of the 16 chapters trying to tackle specific church fights while offering general theological guidance or his best judgment. This entire letter is full of Paul's responses to church fights and debates breaking out in that young Corinthian church. And this chapter, chapter 8, stands right at the center of the letter. On the surface, here's the issue. Some members of the Corinthian church wanted to be free to eat food that they knew had been used in the worship of pagan idols. They felt it was unavoidable. The city of Corinth was chock full of paganisms and temples to this god or that god. That was the Greek culture and the dominant religion. Many of the people in the new Corinthian church had come up from that culture and religious upbringing. Plus, the only social areas for gathering were banquet halls that were attached to these pagan temples. So if you bought meat in the marketplace, that's where the meat would go if it was not eaten at the the ceremony— Or if you attended a social event in the larger community, it was inevitable that you were going to be eating food that had been sacrificed in idol worship. Now, for some of the members of the Corinthian church, this was not an issue. They felt strong and grounded in their faith. They knew there was one true God and those idols were not divine. Therefore, regardless of where the meat had been, the meat was just meat and they were not going to waste good food. Their knowledge of the gospel gave them the freedom not to have to worry about that anymore. And yet, just like in every single church, there were other people in that Corinthian church who felt the exact opposite way. They too felt strong and grounded in their faith, but they believed that if they were to eat that meat, it would lessen their devotion to God. Furthermore, they believed it'd be a shaky witness to those who were new Christians because it would make it look like idol worship could go hand in hand with Christianity. You see the struggle. So church members on both sides of this issue wanted Paul to tell them who was right and who was wrong. They needed to know. First thing Paul says in response, I know that all of you possess knowledge, but know this. Knowledge puffs up, but love 
builds up. Paul wanted to make sure that all of those who felt absolutely certain that they have it right, that their way is the correct way, the faithful way, that they are the strong ones, Paul wants all of them to do an arrogance check. Anyone who claims to know with certainty, Paul says, does not have the necessary knowledge. But someone who loves God is known by God. In other words, remember, friends, God is the one who knows all, not you. God is the omniscient one, not any of you. After that introductory zinger, Paul then continues to hold up this tension between the necessity to hold strong theological beliefs and the call to love one another. And that's love as an action verb, not a feeling of fondness. Paul agrees that from a purely theological standpoint, eating the meat is not a problem. It is not a diminishment to one's loyalty to Christ. But from a love of neighbor standpoint, Paul concludes eating the meat is just not worth it. For even though those who are worried about eating the food were theologically incorrect, Paul determines that in this case, love for one another must take precedence over principles. So those of you who feel that you are the strong ones, he writes, This freedom that comes from your theological certainty is going to have to take a back seat to your love for your brother or sister in faith. As a follower of Christ, it's sometimes more important to be and act loving than it is to prove that one is right. As a follower of Christ, it is sometimes more important to be and act loving than it is to prove that one is right. This Pauline conviction should not surprise us. This is the same letter that contains the words, love does not insist on its own way. As our friend Laura Mendenhall, the former president of Columbia Seminary, has preached, and so while we acknowledge the importance of knowledge and of freedom in our faith, we also acknowledge that what must determine our behavior is love for one another. We are not free to think only of our own response to a situation. We have to take into account those affected by our actions. There are limitations imposed by love, end quote. As followers of Christ, it is sometimes more important to be an act loving than it is to prove that one is right. And yet, honestly, Even though I know this is a pastoral response to a particular situation, it is about situational faithfulness, I must also admit I am struggling with this Pauline challenge today. What are we to do if we know something is right and the other option is just plain not? What are we to do when people who also claim to follow Jesus are making decisions that we feel are not just wrong, but unjust? I'm thinking about Texas's attorney general threatening women, their caregivers, and their doctors if they need abortion as health care. I'm thinking about Alabama's attorney general who just approvingly spoke of their last execution by nitrogen gas and offered to help other states go down the same path. I'm thinking about the truck convoy who has named itself God's Army and who is planning to go to our southern border to do whatever they think is appropriate to close it and to confront migrants attempting to cross. 
I'm sure you have your own examples. Are we supposed to just love them and let them do what they do since they also claim to follow Jesus? I don't think I can do that. I don't think we can do that. We can't just stay silent in the face of their actions and try to just feel or act lovingly towards them. But what if that's not what Paul would counsel? Perhaps Paul's wisdom might center less on our actions and more on our internal or spiritual motivations for taking those actions. What motivates our quest? To be right and to make sure others see that we are right? To be seen as standing on the right side of history? To punish those who are on the other side and give them a taste of their own medicine? Or what about rage? There's a lot of that going around these days. Is rage our primary motivator? My friend, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, speaks to this challenge in his latest book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. In one chapter entitled, Redirect Your Rage, he writes movingly on his own struggle with the profoundly deep anger and frustration he has felt while living as a black person in a culture steeped still in white supremacy. He was raised by parents in a home thoroughly immersed in the nonviolent prophetic tradition of Reverend Dr. King. His father is a leader in that movement. But as a teenager and as a college student, Reverend Dr. Moss had grown impatient with the nonviolent movement and tactics. I felt a strong wish to be a warrior and protector for my people, he wrote. And yet over time and through continued study and challenge, including seminary, his internal spiritual life began to once again mirror more his roots. When reflecting on those who've inspired him, Moss wrote this, I learned from all these examples that while there is frustration in restraining your impulses, tolerating that frustration is our one chance to redirect our power to achieve our greatest goals. As Dr. King preached, men must see that force begets force. Hate begets hate. Toughness begets toughness. And it is all a descending spiral, ultimately ending in destruction for all and everybody. Somebody must have sense enough and morality enough to cut off the chain of hate and the chain of evil in the universe. Our impulsive anger may feel justified, even righteous for a while, Moss continued. But then, those unconsidered impulses ravage our world like demons. I think Paul would agree. For while I know that Paul is talking about a particular pastoral situation in this chapter, there is a deeper layer to his counsel, a bigger picture faithfulness when he claims that sometimes it is more important to act and be loving than it is to prove that one is right. For a while, that proving might feel good. Oftentimes, when it's only rage or a desire to be shown as right when that's what's primarily motivating us, even motivating us to do righteous action, 
Well, often we will end up being ravaged by those same demons we once used as fuel for our fire. I have known those I would consider to be freedom fighters, fighters against all kinds of injustice, who lived so much of their lives in the trenches, fueled primarily by a righteous rage, that they ended up almost being eaten from the inside out, too angry and too bitter to be able to be of more help in the longer run. They had proven they were right for sure, but at what cost? At what cost to their own spirits and to the integrity of their cause? And yet, as Paul writes and Reverend Dr. Moss reflects, if we can find our way to be motivated by the love that God has for all people, including the ones we are acting against, if we can strive to recognize the humanity of all people, even the ones we would rather disregard or who so easily disregard us, there is, as Moss writes, a depth of spirituality in that choice that is deeper than any doctrine. In that choice for love, we find the sacred. Indeed. For we worship a God who, in Jesus, always had the power to wipe out his enemies, to conquer violence with violence of his own, to prove that he was right and to rage against the machine of empire, and yet a God who in Jesus purposefully restrained that power, any rage and that need to prove in order to show us this strength of a liberating love so profound that we still gather to marvel at its beauty and its ability to change all things, even us. We worship a God who gave it all up for love. So perhaps even as we make our pleas for justice, even as we speak up for mercy, even as we act out for inclusion, even as we make whatever good trouble we feel deeply called to make, perhaps a question we might always want to ask ourselves is if we can be more motivated by love, the love of God in Christ Jesus, the love of God for all creation, then we are motivated to be proven right. The limitations that come with reflecting God's love into this world might just save us from ourselves. And we might be of more use for a longer time in helping God to bend that arc towards justice, towards a love a love that builds up all. May it be so. Amen. We are glad you joined us for this podcast from Central Presbyterian Church. Central is a welcoming congregation of the Presbyterian Church USA located in downtown Atlanta across from the state capitol. For more information about the life, work and ministries please visit our website at cpcatlanta.org. 
We also invite you to join us for worship and Sunday school and experience this exciting and diverse body of believers who seek to be bearers of God's justice in the world. Thanks again for listening.